This morning we dedicated a beautiful little girl, Sophia Francesca Edrington Martinez. As a congregation, we promised to strengthen and guide her on a path of peace, generosity, and compassion. What would we not do for this precious child? What courage unknown would we summon to keep her from harm? If she darted into traffic, would we not risk our own lives to pull her to safety? If she were hurt, would we not tend her wounds and keep watch by her bedside? Of course we would, instantly, instinctively, without weighing the cost. Last Thursday afternoon, many of us were transfixed for hours by the drama of a six-year-old boy apparently trapped in a balloon floating in the Colorado skies. TV news cut away from the President of the United States to trace the balloon's flight, interview the neighbors, psychoanalyze the parents, speculate wildly about aerodynamics and air temperature. Breathless, we watched and worried, and many of us prayed. To save one child, we would do anything. But to save millions of children, the hungry, the sick, the abused, the oppressed, what do we do? What do we do to safeguard the earth they will inherit? Today we stand for climate justice. I say climate justice because the phrases global warming and climate change fail to convey the urgency and immorality of our situation. We in the United States are 5% of the world's population, but we consume 25% of the world's resources. The impacts of climate disruption, famine, drought, flood, storm, economic stress, agricultural collapse, forced migration, will burden disproportionately those least responsible for the problem, the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet. Professor of Environmental Studies David Orr sums up our situation. We've already warmed the planet by 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit. We are committed to another degree of warming. It's too late to avoid trauma, but it might not be too late to avoid catastrophe. There are no magic bullets. It is truly a global emergency. I put it this way. We're all on a train speeding toward a rock slide. Already the stopping distance of the train exceeds the track ahead, but we're not even pulling the brake. Why do we not act? 
The very gravity and complexity of the problem make us feel powerless, especially in a political system dominated by wealth and entertainment masquerading as news. My colleague, the Reverend Claire Butterfield, says, people avoid environmental action because they know just enough to be terrified. But terror is a luxury we can no longer afford. Our kids are in danger. We're the grown-ups. We've got to do something. We don't have a choice. We are told to change light bulbs. Changing a light bulb is good. Changing a senator is better. Changing our lifestyles is essential, but it is not enough. And it will not happen in sufficient quantity and quality until supported by market signals demanded by law. That's why the right wing is apoplectic about climate change, which they denounce as a fraud and a Trojan horse for world government. We don't need world government to stop global warming but we do need world cooperation and governmental leadership. Ten days ago, I helped clean up after a pizza party at Cambridge Friends School, where my daughter Lucy is in kindergarten. I noticed a lot of recyclable plastic cups in the trash barrel. Is there recycling? I asked a teacher. Oh yes, she answered. We set out a blue bin with a sign on it. So I got down on my hands and knees and plunged my hands into the trash searching for every cup with that little triangle on it, not wanting a single one to go to waste. I, collect, I collected a couple of dozen, but the deeper I got in the trash, the stickier and nastier it got. When I reached an impenetrable layer of sour cream and chive dip, I decided to call it a day. And it got me thinking. If the highly educated, thoughtful, concerned parents of a Quaker school in one of the most liberal cities in the United States throw their recyclable cups in the trash, what prospect is there for a voluntary, personal lifestyle change as a strategy for climate justice? Why did they throw their cups away? Because it didn't cost them anything. Plastic is cheap. Throwing it away is cheap. Recycling is a bother. If those cups cost a dollar each, would they have been thrown away? What about $5 or $10? Some of us sometimes respond to our conscience, but everybody responds to price. Last weekend, Julie and I went hiking in the Green Mountains. I bought a new backpack for the trip. Was it made of canvas, leather, wood, and other sustainably harvested and compostable materials? No! It was made of nylon and aluminum. Not only that, I could have found a backpack at EMS in Harvard Square. But I drove 15 miles to REI in Reading. Why? I like REI. They're a cooperative. I'm a member. They have a bigger selection. And gas is cheap. When gas is cheap, people drive, even environmentalists.
even when we don't have to. When gas is expensive, everything changes. People stop buying SUVs. They start carpooling and bicycling and taking the tea. They move closer to where they work. We need an energy policy that prices fuel and raw materials at their true cost, not just to the producer, but to future generations, while making sure the real energy needs of low-income people are met. The political dynamic of climate justice is daunting. The chasm between what is necessary and what is possible in American politics looms larger now than at any time since just before the Civil War. The climate bills passed by the House of Representatives and pending in the Senate are both laced with loopholes and giveaways to energy and extraction interests. These bills need des desperately to be strengthened. But even more, they need to be passed. With first the economic stimulus and now health care taking priority, it seems unlikely that Congress can pass climate legislation in time for the all-important international climate talks in Copenhagen in December. So our diplomats will be negotiating with China and India, swiftly emerging as major contributors to global warming, with the United States uncommitted to any greenhouse reductions at all. When it comes to limiting greenhouse emissions, the nations of the world, whatever their religion, all pray the prayer of St. Augustine. Lord, make me chaste. But not yet. So we have our work cut out for us. We must sound the alarm of a climate in crisis and incite a timorous Congress to bold action. At 2 o'clock this afternoon, climate prophet Bill McKibben will address a climate convocation of religious, academic, and civic leaders at Memorial Church in Harvard Yard. Unitarian Universalist Association President Peter Morales will lead us in prayer, and I will lead us in song. This coming Saturday, October 24, is the International Day of Climate Action sponsored by 350.org, the global network McKibben founded to spread the conclusion of scientists that our atmosphere can tolerate no more than 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide without catastrophic global warming. Unfortunately, we're already at 390 parts per million. At 1 o'clock next Saturday, First Parish will ring our church bell 350 times and send off bicyclists leaving Cambridge Common for Christopher Columbus Park in Boston, where the Boston Underwater 350 Festival will kick off at 3 o'clock. I hope you can join these actions and many others described at 350.org. Beyond October 24, we have to mobilize voters to make climate justice a compelling priority. Although polls indicate a solid majority of Americans want action to stop global warming, the power of entrenched lobbies for carbon-based industries tilts the playing field against us. We have to make our grassroots more influential than their astroturf. A poll last January found that American voters ranked global warming dead last among 20 concerns. Only 30% consider global warming a top priority, down from 35% the previous year. Now, it's understandable that people gripped by recession would favor immediate action on the economy and health care. 
But if we don't push climate justice to the top of the agenda, it will always be shoved aside by shorter term goals. So while we're shrinking our carbon footprint, we've got to expand our political footprint or the oil lobbyists and the coal lobbyists are going to be scraping us off the bottom of their shoes. Let's spend as much time making noise as we do sorting our recyclables. Every time we change a light bulb, let's pick up the phone, dial our senator or member of Congress and tell them we want the strongest possible climate bill by December. If we pay extra for organic or locally grown food, let's send an equal contribution to 350.org or One Sky or Green for All or PowerShift and become part of their activist networks. On January 19, Massachusetts voters will elect a new United States Senator. Maybe we already have a favorite candidate. Where do they stand on climate justice? Have they endorsed 350? Has anybody asked them? Imagine if somebody asked about 350 at every public appearance by every candidate between now and the election. That would shift the conversation. We have entered an era biologist Edward O. Wilson calls the bottleneck, in which population growth and consumption press against the carrying capacity of the earth. But a bottleneck can also be a birth canal, and the stress we now feel just might be the birth pangs of a new era of cooperation and reverence for the earth. While cautioning that things will get worse before they get better, David Orr foresees a sustainable society of windmills and solar collectors, local farms, healthier food, vibrant cities, public parks, community theaters, more kids playing outdoors. The things we have to do to stop global warming are things we should be doing anyway for our quality of life. Contemplating the human prospect as climate change accelerates, it's hard to feel optimistic. But hope, hope is stronger stuff than optimism. Hope, says Václav Havel, is a dimension of the soul, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizon. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Reflecting on the dark night of the soul, African-American minister Michael Beckwith calls darkness the depth of spiritual potential hidden in the void of infinite possibility. As we willingly surrender ourselves to the evolutionary process of the dark night, Beckwith says, we make ourselves available to profound transformation. And he offers us two questions to ask ourselves in the darkness. First, if this dark night never goes away, what quality would I have to cultivate 
to have peace of mind. If this dark night never goes away, what quality would I have to cultivate to have peace of mind? And second, where may I give of myself in service to others? Where may I give of myself in service to others? Between despair and hope lies devotion. Devotion is love without possession, commitment without attachment. We cannot know what the future holds for us or for Sophia, let alone control it. We can only choose day after day to live our lives with integrity and courage in service to those with whom we share this beautiful, fragile, miraculous earth. Amen. And blessed be.